0: listening to Pythagoras' Trousers. Hello and welcome to the last Pythagorean astronomy of 2019. The last one of the 2010s I suppose. Uh, With me Chris
1: North. And me Edward Gomez.
0: It's been uh, a busy year and we've got a busy year and decade coming up in space uh, and astronomy. uh, Something that comes up all the time uh, and and this year has been no exception is exoplanets. So planets around other stars and what we're learning about them. So uh, there's been quite a lot happen. Recently,
1: Yeah, particularly. A Nobel Prize has been won yeah. by the discoverers of the first exoplanet. Well, not really the first exoplanet. The first exoplanet orbiting a sun-like star, um, right. which yeah. was going around uh, the... I remember this when I was an undergraduate, actually. Uh, mm. puts in, that shows how old I am. But uh, <laughs> um, it was going around the star 51 Pegasi, uh, which is the 51st brightest star in the constellation of Pegasus. Um, and that was uh, the Nobel Prize is won by uh, Ma- Michel Mayor and Didier Kellos, uh, uh, which are both French astronomers. Yeah, so they, uh, uh, they won that this year. They took a share
0: of the Nobel Prize for that first discovery. But that first discovery in 1995 was really the, very much the tip of the iceberg. I think we're currently on over 4,000 confirmed planets around uh, around stars in previous in the last decade or so a lot of them are coming out of the kepler spacecraft which was the the nasa spacecraft uh looking for for transit this blink uh, blinking of of uh, uh, star's light as a planet passes in front of it for, from our point of view and um, its successor in some ways is a satellite called tess which i think is the transiting exoplanet survey satellite yes if memory serves Um, and that's doing something similar It can look at brighter stars and it can look over the whole sky so that's going to find even more in principle
1: yeah that's right if it doesn't suffer a similar problem to to Kepler because the Kepler spacecraft um, does very very long observing runs uh, so sequential observations for uh, a few hours up to um, tens of hours uh, looking at the same star and uh, a problem with the spacecraft it had three gyroscopes and when the gyroscope failed and uh, they could no longer have such precise control over where it was pointing. Uh, and so this opened up a, a new... The astronomers are very tricky characters. And so uh, they realised that they could still stabilise in, in one axis with the, the two gyroscopes. And they could use the, the pressure from the sun uh, against the, the solar panel... Uh, to stabilize in a third direction, it meant that they couldn't do any exoplanet science anymore, or not in the same way, not surveying. But they could do a lot more science, uh, and and this was called the Kepler Two phase, and that's that's benefited all of astronomy.
0: Mm, There's been a, a huge number of results uh, come out that, and still coming out. The data is is public, it's yep. open,
1: uh, anyone can go and can go and look
0: at it. Uh, TESS has had its first uh, results of of finding some some planets and following up and, and looking at others as well. Um, but we're moving from the era of, of finding exoplanets uh, and, and you know, building up this catalog catalog. We've got a feel for how many exoplanets of different sizes are there. We, we want to find some smaller ones, more smaller ones, and that will, that will need better observations. But we're moving towards again that's all very well. There's a planet around another star. What's the planet like? so characterising them. And to date, and there were some stories out this year about what we can do with looking for some chemical compositions of, of atmospheres, um, looking for things like water and methane and so on, but they're really rudimentary at the moment.
1: It's very much looking at the colour at the moment, the colour of the atmosphere to infer what the chemical composition of it is, and uh, and that's done by looking at the light when the planet is in front of the star, and then looking at it when the planet is behind the star, and and taking the difference between the two, and using different filters to to work out the the different colours that are that are that are uh, shining through the atmosphere of the the planet, which is which is not very. Accurate and not very representative,
0: and very dependent on what your assumptions are.
1: Yeah, you can say if we assume it's a mixture
0: of you know water and methane, for example, or water and rock maybe, or whatever. Then you can say, well, we can figure out what the balance is, how much water there might be, how much water vapour is in the atmosphere. What you can't say is um, if that model is if that model is completely correct. If it's not water and methane, then your measurement, your conclusion will be wrong.
1: Yeah, that's right. And and also you can characterise an exoplanet, not just the atmosphere, but the the composition of the planet, very simply by doing uh, an average density Mm -hmm. and... Uh, through other methods of detection of exoplanets, you can measure the size and the mass, and then you can get an average density. And then people do theoretical models of whether these things have things like the Earth does an iron core and then uh, a mantle and a crust, and the composition of those to arrive at the observed average density. And, um, and, and that's, that's, that's somewhat better uh, at for for just the understanding the, the composition of the planet, but still not as good as a direct measurement.
0: But in coming years, we'll get a lot more measurements of, of this kind of thing because there's a there's a satellite just launched, a very small satellite, actually, a small small um, cost satellite, uh, Kaops. Uh, which is a European Space Agency satellite to characterise exoplanets. And in, in the years to come, we've got several more launching. Uh, Plato is going to be finding more pla- uh, planets as well. Um, but then in, at the end of this decade, or this next decade, Ariel, which is another European Space Agency mission, is going to uh, to launch as well to try and uh, look at the compositions of planets, possibly not Earth-like planets, because they're so small they're, they're hard to measure, but... Planets, So, you know, maybe big planets around small stars um, that, that it, can, it can try and uh, try and characterize to, to get a feel for what they're like and how they compare with our solar system. That's going to let us understand these objects, which are normally tens, hundreds of light years away. Uh, but what about objects that have come from that far and actually come closer? We've had interstellar visitors. Uh, we had one a couple of years ago called Oumuamua. Uh, and we had one uh, this year that's still in the process of going past the sun uh, making its closest approach uh, just in the, the late month, latter months of this year, uh, called Borisov.
1: That's right. So these are uh, two interstellar visitors. They're not uh, they're not aliens. Well, uh, they're aliens in some respect, but they're not alive. Uh, there's Umiu-Umiu was an interstellar asteroid, and Borisov. What is an interstellar comet? So when I spoke uh, last month, I discovered that to my surprise, that a
0: Muir is often not classed as an asteroid, but as a as a dead comet. Um, so it doesn't have a tail like a comet does, but it seems to be an icy object, much like asteroids, which was news to me when I when when I found out as well. So these are. Uh, But they are incredibly different objects.
1: Yeah, the um, Oumuamua seem to be cigar-shaped, sort of very, very long, uh, whereas Borisov appears to be more of a traditional comet. And actually, Borisov appears to be very, very similar to uh, the the, the long-period comets that we see that we're very familiar with, mm-hmm. comets like Comet Halley. Uh, they have a very, very similar composition. Now, this may be because we've been able to study Borisov a lot more than Umu Amur, which we could only study for almost a matter of weeks. I think it was something like two months mm-hmm. uh, we could see it before it was it was uh, disappearing and, and far too far away. We know that it wasn't an alien spacecraft, uh, as some mm-hmm. people, or other... Uh, we have strong suspicions that it's not an alien spacecraft. We sent signals to it, radio signals, and we heard nothing back. So that's in some senses reassuring. Um, Whereas uh, Borisov, uh, we've been able to observe a lot more because it was first... Found when it was approaching the Sun. So we've got all of the time where it approaches the Sun and then the time that it recedes from the Sun, whereas Oumuamua, we only detected it after it had been around the Sun and it was heading away. Both of them are interstellar, and the reason that we know this is because the orbits that they're on are totally unlike the orbit of anything that it has a solar system origin, so nothing from the Oort cloud or from the Kuiper belts, these two regions that that we get comets from. Borisov and Oumuamua not only had U-shaped orbits, so they're a the one-time uh, only event, as they they hurtle towards the sun and then back out. But also the uh, they're inclined um, very very steeply with respect to the rest of the the contents of the solar system. And they're just moving
0: far too quickly. Yeah, uh, there's, there's nothing in our solar system that kind of made them move uh, that quickly. Essentially, so they must have been flung here by another. By another,
1: uh, from another star system, or well, many sped up by visiting many yeah. other star systems. Very much like is happening with the sun.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, and there are possible plans uh, to go and uh, visit some of these with things like the Comet Interceptor mission in uh, the late 2020s, which will which will launch along with the uh, on the same rocket as the the, the aerial mission, uh, I believe. Um, so there's a chance that I can go and find a. a, a An interstellar comet, Uh, if failing that, it will go and find a a normal comet, uh, if you like. The comets from our solar system tell us about the history of our own solar system. So it'll be interesting to see whether from these interstellar ones we can glean anything about other solar systems uh, as well. To actually go and visit these objects is an incredibly challenging thing to do. Uh, You don't just send a spacecraft there and apply the brakes and and, and sit in orbits around these objects. Uh, To discuss a little bit more about this, uh, I spoke to uh, a colleague who recently joined us uh, based here in Cardiff, but uh, Dr. Claudia Antolini is the Engagement Officer for Institute of Physics Wales, uh, now based here in Cardiff. And we began by discussing just how hard orbiting these objects is.
2: One extremely interesting aspect is the challenge of uh, not only getting there, but starting to orbit and eventually landing on a very, very small body. Is not only hard because these places are incredibly distant and possibly hostile. We don't know the actual Mm. shape and surface of the planet. But landing on a very small body has the added challenge of microgravity. So on Earth, we know that everything that goes up has to come down Mm -hmm. on a very small body. That's a lot harder because it's small. So the the attraction of gravity is, is a lot smaller and the fact that a body is a bit irregular, it might have spikes, it might have a bit of corners, it's not nice and round like more or less the Earth mm. can be. That means that your force of gravity is also very non uniform. Mm. So, getting to compute and give instructions to a lander and successfully perform such a complicated maneuver is in itself an extremely challenging achievement that should be celebrated. And then clearly, after that, you have a wealth of scientific information that you can only achieve by getting there and then at uh, precisely the right way.
0: I know the, the the missions over the last few years they always seem to surprise us. So we had uh, Rosetta um, that went past or went and orbited uh, orbit uh, comet sixty seven P, Churyumov Gerasimenko, um, and. That arrived and, uh, a few years ago now, found that it was this rubber duck-shaped, this twin load sort of dumbbell-shaped object. So you're right, an irregular object. Um, actually, on some points of it, figuring out which way is down in terms of its gravitational pull is, is hard. Ryugu, this, this, this asteroid that, that Hayabusa 2 uh, visited, um, is wasn't such an irregular shape in total. It wasn't perfectly round, of course. But it was covered in boulders. And then you have the problem of how do you land on something where you might land and tip over because one leg's on a boulder. So you're right, this is all, all tricky stuff.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a massive technical achievement because getting there in itself is like, you know, we, we have sent stuff to Mars before. These objects are, in principle, closer. So there's not a problem of fuel. Mm. There's a problem of, like, OK, like, all right, people, once we got there, what do we do with mm. it? That's, that's more of the challenge, figuring out how you're going to move, what is your control system going to be like, like you need to have perfect state-of-the-art telecom Mm. communications between you and Earth, which is, of course, never in real time. Mm. And everything you are going to learn about that surface, you're going to learn about it there and then because there has never been an imaging Mm. uh, mission before that one. So and, and you know you don't want to send another one later. It's not like the Apollo program that you know we sent a few probes to the moon and started taking pictures and figuring out you know how we're going to approach it. In this one, you you just want to get it done. And that, so that's so much uh, interesting to to approach it. And clearly now with all the new technologies that are available, it is possible. But every time that these things happen. Is such a massive achievement that we, we tend to give for granted that all missions are always going to be successful.
0: There have also been uh, other missions. We mentioned Rosetta going to 67P. We of course had New Horizons, which in 2015 flew past Pluto. Has also been to visit a tiny object originally called 2014 MU69, now been given, officially given a name, Arrokoth. Um, in the uh, which is a the...
2: super fantastic word. It means uh, sky in a, in a. Native American language.
0: So, when New Horizons flew past Arrokoth right at the start of the year, New Year's Day, 2019, and has slowly been sending back information, we had two pancake-shaped objects t- stuck together, which is very bizarre. But one of the things we're learning about these is is w- one they tell us about the origin of the solar system, but also it's important for us to know what they're made of because at some point we might need to interact with these in a more direct way than just going and orbiting and landing on them. The, Some of these objects, not Arakov in the outer solar system, or or luckily Ryugu either, might at some point be a danger to us. So we need to know what they're made of.
2: Well, there's a number of objects that lies relatively close to Earth, and the extent of this relatively close is not something that should alarm any of Mm -hmm. our listeners, really, because uh, this area is quite broad. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we still have a number of little to bigger rocks, that mm. is in our vicinities, and uh, what you're what you're talking about is the issue of planetary protection. Mm. So we we don't want to be dinosaurs part two. We yeah, don't want to yeah. be hit by an asteroid and like that causing the end of our species. Uh, if we can help it, of course. Mm. So how do we help it? Well, th- there is a number of missions, uh, not only the the two that you have mentioned, but more recently. Uh, the European Space Agency has approved the HERA mission, mm. which is, again, following in, in this path, if we want. So it will attempt to reach a tiny asteroid to the moon and not only land on it, and so do all that work that we were saying before, so the imaging, some orbiting, then eventually landing on it, but one of its instruments... Wants to try and deflect its orbit, its path, from where it's lying now to another more, let's say, favorable orbit, mm. a bit further away from Earth, maybe. So, we are really starting to look into how to be proactive in, in planetary protection, not only which is already a massive achievement in itself, uh, detecting these objects, uh, computing their orbits, and determining where where. Their orbit is going to, uh, to lie with respect to Earth and the rest of the solar system. But once we see an object that we think, you know, let, we really don't want to be concerned about that one, we can decide, clearly with a certain uh, amount of resources and, and time and money, uh, to, to get there directly, take a look and maybe decide to give it a bit of a kick.
0: And there, there are various ways of, there are all sorts of ways that we might give these asteroids kicks to, to move them. Um, there are plans for things called a gravity tractor, where you just put something massive near them and drag them away. There are, there are ways you can uh, paint them different colours so they reflect the sunlight differently and move around. The, what, this gonna, what this is going to test is with another mission called DART, which is a NASA mission that's going to launch uh, a couple of years beforehand, is that will impact uh, the object, it's actually two, it's a binary object, there are two of them, so it will impact the larger object, I think. Um, uh, and and then the e the mission hero will go and see whether its motion has changed or what, what impact that collision has. So it, it, it's, in, it's a binary system, there are two objects, uh, Didymos uh, and Didymoon uh, are the, the two objects, so Didymos is, is about 800 metres across, Didymoon is about 160 so uh they they' said it's about the same size, about about the same size as the pyramid of G- Great Pyramid of Giza. that would certainly make a bang if it hit the earth it's, uh, yeah you yeah, don't want to yeah, be yeah. there you know uh, and and so the the NASA mission called dart, which is the double asteroid redirection test um uh, to give it its full title, dart is going to collide with the object in about twenty twenty two and a few years later. If it's had an effect that will change the way they are orbiting around each other, and here we'll find that, and we'll find out, is impacting these things, is giving them a, 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 a an actual physical kick with a with an object, is that a way of uh, is it effective? It? Yeah, does it work?
2: And what, how does it change it? Yeah. You know, we in physics, it's never about will it work; is what is its effect? Because we use on Earth that generally stuff moves on a plane, but clearly in space, everything is a lot trickier than that
0: Uh, so that that's an interesting thing that will will come to fruition in in possibly well hopefully decades time or hundreds on when we actually need to do this for real because it it may well come come to the light that we need to do this with with an asteroid at at some point so Didymos is not a danger to earth at the moment but because it gets close enough it is a useful one uh, useful one to try and, uh, and, and test this on so that's that's asteroid missions in in our solar system uh, we've also had, of course, the NASA mission OSIRIS-REx, which has gone to asteroid Bennu, a bit like Ryugu, to, to see what that's made of as well. So we're starting to learn a lot more about these bodies and, and, and how effective these, these methods uh, might be. Let's go, let's go further afield. So that's solar system science and the very small objects in the solar system. Let, let's go to the other end of the scale. Let's go to the largest things that we kind of think of, the black holes in the centre of our galaxy. Big story that came out earlier this year was uh, observations of uh, a black hole, direct observations of a black hole. Now, a black hole doesn't emit any light, uh, so we didn't see the black hole itself. We kind of saw its shadow or its silhouette. Um, It was a very exciting result when it came out, wasn't it?
2: Oh, yeah. Well, I I barely slept the night before. (laughs) I was so excited. Um, Well, yes, the, the tricky thing about black holes is that they have this huge gravitational field, so they tend to pull everything towards them including light. So uh, you can't really take a picture of your cat in the dark. Can mm. you? It's, mm-hmm. it's hard. You don't really know where it is. Yeah. You don't really know how big it is. Uh, so black holes do a bit of that. But thankfully, they have something that generally orbits around them, which still haven't been dragged inside. And so that's how we get a picture of them. That's how we can get an image of them. We observe the things that are... Outside, They still haven't been captured Mm. by the black hole. And uh, clearly in the lead up to this observation by the Event Horizon Telescope collaboration, there had been a wealth of simulation work uh, going on and we have almost maybe all of us have seen some bits of it in Stellar as well Mm. uh, because that was actual simulations by Kip Thorne's team. Mm. of what we thought a black hole would look like. Clearly, they, the pictures that we've seen from M87 are slightly less spectacular than that. But that's not because they were not accurate. Mm. It's because we still don't have the resolution to really, really get to that nitty-gritty of, um, of the, the parts that are around the black hole. So what we have actually seen, of course, is not exactly the black hole, but we went as close to it as to the event horizon, which is a very interesting area around the black hole because it's where it's the last region, is the last line where you can actually see a photon, a, a particle of light, before it gets ultimately sucked in. If we had the sun shrinking to the size of a black hole of the equivalent mass, we are talking about three kilometers, that object is a lot, a lot bigger. Mm. M87 is bigger than the whole solar system in itself. So we're talking about something that is incredibly heavy, incredibly large, but it's also incredibly far. So the fact that we were able to essentially take a picture of something a bit bigger than the solar system from such a distance, and it has such a faint emission, again, Event Horizon Telescope, when you say like that, it sounds like it's one object, But we're talking about a network of experiments all spread around Earth. So in this case, the achievement is being able to coordinate such a big team and making sure that all those observations are correctly timed because all is based on interferometry. Mm. So you want to make sure that your wavelengths are all perfectly timed in agreement with each other because otherwise you're going to get lost in noise.
0: Mm. And so this was a case of, as you say, combining telescopes from around the world to make a telescope that is effectively the size of the Earth. Yes. Right? So you can't imagine a much bigger telescope than that uh, on the surface, of course. We could one day go further. There are plans in the future that the, uh, the, the, the black hole it observed in the galaxy M87 is a, is, is a few billion times the mass of our sun. So it's incredibly massive. There are plans for, to release observations that are uh, uh, around the, the black hole at the centre of our galaxy. Uh, Which is goes by the name of Sagittarius A star. Sometimes, Um, that's uh, a a couple of million times the mass of our sun. So it's much smaller. Um, uh, It means it's physically its it's diameter is smaller as well as as well as its mass. Um, That means things change more quickly, which adds its own um, uh, challenges (laughs) because the thing is blurred, like motion blur, essentially as your Mm. your telescope is is observing it. Um, And we know it does change on small timescales. We've seen flares from around the black hole where it, maybe it swallowed something and just before it does it's essentially, it's essentially burped. It's given out a, uh, a, a flare of light uh, from, from that material heating up as it, as it goes in. So getting observations of the one in the centre of our galaxy, which is of course much, much closer will also tell us uh, an awful lot about uh, about that as well. I think it's about a 1,000 times closer, but a 1,000 times smaller as well, so it's still hard to observe.
2: Yeah, and the other challenge is that, as opposed to M87, which lies sort of nicely f- face-on, mm. uh, clearly the black hole inside the galaxy is inside the galaxy, and so to get to it, we have to cross all the spiral arms mm. of the galaxy, so you have lots of, of stars and... Um, all sorts of things that lies in between uh, lots of interstellar dust and and gas so paradoxically even though it's in within our neighborhood the fact that it's a bit smaller and the fact that there's lots of stuff in between that you can't really disentangle as easily makes it more challenging even though it might seem a bit counterintuitive Mm.
0: So we look forward, I'm not sure when the results of that are due out, uh, they may well still be taking, taking observations, but at some point in the next few years hopefully we'll, uh, we'll get those. So next year is 2020 we've got a couple of anniversaries to celebrate as well next year. So we've got 30 years it's almost who would have thought it 30 years ago 30 years of the Hubble Space Telescope. In
2: uh, orbit. In orbit. Yeah. Like it's yeah. not just the anniversary of the launch. Hubble Space Telescope is still operating. Yeah, yeah.
0: So it's it's still still going 30 years 30 years later. So there'll be celebrations around the world uh, about the things that Hubble has shown us uh, over the over 3 decades which is which is quite remarkable. Um, It's also the uh, 30th anniversary of uh, a a somewhat niche image, um, but still quite famous in its concept, something called the pale blue dot image. People may have heard of the the phrase pale blue dot used used to refer to the Earth. And the reason for that is because 30 years ago, February 1990, the Voyager spacecraft from uh, billions of miles away, took a photo of the Earth, and it was just this tiny pale blue dot, as it were, uh, a remarkable image for the sort of the, for us to look at and really see what the planet, how small the planet is.
2: Well, again, that was something that was really pushing the boundaries of our knowledge at the time. Mm. The, the Voyager missions were the first objects that really were able to go so far away mm. from from Earth. So sometimes that image is referred to as. Also, like, everything that ever happened about humankind is in this picture.
0: Mm.
2: Everything that we as a species ever knew is in there, and that's quite powerful, really.
0: It was certain, certainly poignant back then, and it still is very poignant uh, today to, to look back and reflect on, uh, well, how far Voyager has gone, but how far, you know, uh, uh, how much or how insignificant we are in the grand, uh, grand scheme of things, just a few pixels in, in one image. So on that humbling note, don't forget you can find past episodes at pythagastro.uk. All that's left is to thank Claudia, Edward and everyone who's contributed over the past year and to wish everyone a happy new year and a prosperous 2020. Until next year, goodbye. You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Rhys Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm.